This week, the latest episode of a science soap opera, writing the IPCC reports. You have four days to approve this, this summary, which is about 10 to 20 pages. You know, and after half a day, we hadn't got past the first sentence, and I was getting really desperate. And a huge ecological experiment floods a dried-up delta. It's a river reborn. I mean, uh, it was quite an experience to stand down uh, at a bridge down 23 miles downstream and sort of see the water arriving. Plus, an amoeba that kills cells in the gut by biting chunks out of them. This is The Nature Podcast for April the 10th, 2014. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. First this week, something biblical is happening in northwestern Mexico. As of a couple of weeks ago, a flood is coursing through a dried-up river delta. OK, maybe biblical is a bit strong, because this flood was caused by scientists. Reporter Alexandra Witsey travelled to the Colorado River Delta to witness an ecological experiment on a grand scale. The Colorado River runs across much of the western US and across the Mexican border. It used to run all the way south to the Gulf of California. But for decades, people have built dams to capture and use the water. Today, the river never makes it to the sea. I traveled to the very last of these dams, the Morelos Dam on the U.S.-Mexican border. This is where ecologists are trying to pull off a grand experiment. They want to reflood the delta with water and see if they can get native trees to grow and migratory birds to thrive. Well, this is the first time there's ever been an, uh, a release of water specifically for the environment. That's Carl Flessa, a geoscientist at the University of Arizona, who's helping to run the project. He and I are standing atop the Morelos Dam. We're looking at a riverbed that used to be dry sand. Now, it's full of deep blue water. It's a river reborn. I mean, uh, it was quite an experience to stand down uh, at a bridge down 23 miles downstream and sort of see the water arriving and see it coming at us. And you look upstream, and it looks like a normal river. You look downstream, it's a dry riverbed. I've never seen anything like it. From the top of the dam, it's easy to see how people have changed the river. In one direction, the water flows towards broad, flat canals. Those are going to irrigate the broccoli, onions, and other crops that are grown in the Mexicali Valley. But in the other direction, the new river is now flowing. It's a watery lifeline amid this desert landscape. Scientists want to see what all of this water will do to the ecosystem. Here's Jim Leenhouts of the U.S. Geological Survey. The overall objective, of course, of this flow is, is really to restore habitat. Our crews are uh, measuring the discharge uh, at various points downstream from the dam to look at how those discharges change. That's the amount of water flowing in the stream uh, so that we can relate that to how the biology responds. How indeed. From the dam, we pile into a bunch of vans and head downriver. We drive along narrow roads through farming towns until we get to a place where Flessa thinks the water might be. We're heading south. We're going to go to a, a site uh, that we've just started calling the Orange Grove site, downstream of the San Luis Bridge, uh, because I estimate that the water arrived there probably sometime this morning. Uh, so I'd like to take a look at that. That's just a nice, quiet spot. At this stage of the monitoring program, the most exciting part is, is chasing the water. But when we arrive, there is no water. We're chasing the river, and it's right not there. here yet. We were pretty close. Yeah. We just missed it. Oh no, let's go back. <laughs> I mean, it, 
I asked Pat Shafroth, an ecologist with the USGS, to walk me through the Dry River Channel. It's only March, and it's already real hot. We scramble down the sandy riverbank and start picking our way through scrubby-looking trees. Pat tells me what he's looking for once the pulse of water finally makes it here. Well, it's going to vary from place to place depending on whether or not new seedlings can survive the summer, which is can be hot and dry. The peak of the flow is intended to prepare surfaces like new sandbars, and those are perfect sites for trees to uh, disperse their seed, have their seed land on and germinate, and their roots can track the moist, the soil moisture as it recedes as well. And if their roots can keep contact with moist soil, um, then they have a chance of surviving the growing season. The riverbed is full of salt cedar trees, which are an invasive species. To make way for native vegetation, researchers have been trying to get the ground ready. They've worked on certain areas to bulldoze up the salt cedar and make way for native plants, like cottonwood and willows. Here's Karen Schlatter, from the Sonoran Institute in Arizona. We are walking through some cleared area of what used to be pure salt cedar, which is a non-native plant. And the total that we will restore, let's go that way, in the Laguna Grande area is about 750 acres. If we continue a little bit further over here, we can see one of the plots I'll be monitoring. Scientists know the ecosystem can be fixed. Already, animals are starting to return to the new water in the delta. As Flessa tells me on the drive, some enterprising guy sort of showed up with, a, with some fishing nets and, uh, fi and caught, some, caught some big fish right away. Uh, and you know, they, they probably came through the dam, just like the water came through the dam. For many of these scientists, it's an emotional day. They've been working towards this for years. I talked to Francisco Zamora, who's been trying to restore the Colorado River Delta almost all of his professional career. There, is, there are no words to describe. You know, I've been here uh, just trying to follow the, the, the flow since Sunday morning, and it's amazing just to see the water flowing to the river channel and all the wildlife and the people uh, at the bridge in San Luis. Um, you know, the people start to see the water, and in, within an hour, 200 people were there playing with the water. In the end, we finally do catch the water. We've come back upriver. Under the San Luis Bridge at the U.S.-Mexico border, there's an impromptu party going on. Families have brought their kids to splash in the new water. Old men talk about when they were young, when there was always water here, and they would swim and fish. There's a woman selling ice cream and lots and lots of beer. The water won't last forever. In a couple of weeks from now, the Morelos Dam will shut its gates and the water level will drop again. But for now, at least, the scientists have something to celebrate. For a little while, they have raised the river. For The Nature Podcast, I'm Alexandra Witsey. And you can take a look on the podcast homepage for a link to Alex's story about the Delta experiment. That's nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Coming up, robots that act as computers inside cockroaches and bacteria that turn plants into zombies. That's in the research highlights a little later on. 
But actually, sticking with zombies for the time being, next, a story of cells eating other cells alive. Entamoeba histolica is a nasty little parasite. It lives in the gut, where it breaks down cells, causing diarrhoea. Until now, its mechanism of attack has been unclear. Scientists had thought the parasite secreted toxins which killed cells in the intestine before it ate them up. But this week in Nature, a team discovered the parasite has a rather more gruesome way of plaguing its victims. It nibbles away at intestinal cells while they're still alive, swallowing the pieces, which eventually kills them. Understanding how the parasite infects its host is important, because in developing countries, diarrhoea is one of the leading causes of death in children under five, beating out AIDS, tuberculosis or malaria. So if scientists know the parasite's plan of attack, it should help them develop a vaccine to prevent it. Thea Cunningham called authors William Petrie and Katie Rolston to learn more. So how did scientists previously think that this parasite attacked cells? The paradigm or prevailing thought had been that the parasite first touched human cells and then killed them through a process of secreting toxins into the cell and then eats it. So instead of actually killing the cell first and eating it, your team have found that the parasite ingests the cell and then kills it. So Katie, turning to you, how did you set about finding this out? One of the approaches I took was to use live microscopy to watch the parasites interacting with human cells in real time and to see if we could learn anything by watching the process. And basically what we found that we were very surprised by is that the um, parasite actually takes bites of the human cell after it's contacted the human cell. And this happens while the human cell is still alive. So it's, it's basically nibbled to death. Basically, that appears to be the case. So we see the parasite continuing to take bites of the human cell, and then ultimately we'll see that that human cell will be killed. And this is a process known as trogocytosis. Before now, this has only been seen in immune cells. And why would this particular parasite pick trogocytosis over phagocytosis when the whole cell is ingested? So that's a great question. We can only speculate as to why they take bites as, a, as opposed to ingesting an entire cell. One idea is that in the gut during infection, they're interacting with intestinal tissue, and those intestinal epithelial cells are so tightly linked to one another that perhaps the amoeba can't obtain an entire cell um, or isolate an entire cell from that intact tissue, but rather nibbling on a cell is something that the parasite can do and allows it to kill that cell and subsequently invade. And does it nibble away at all cells that you'd find in the intestine or is it specific to some cells only? Almost anything you could think of this parasite can kill. In our studies we saw that they nibbled on and killed T cells, red blood cells, and we also looked at human epithelial cells as well as isolated intestinal tissue from the mouse. And with all those different cell types, we saw the parasites ingesting bites of those cells. And, and your paper actually says that these cells have a threshold to the amount of damage that they can endure. Yeah, so it's interesting. This is a really unusual means of killing a cell. You know, it's a really unusual way for a cell to be killed. And so we hypothesize that the physical damage by the extraction of these bites of material is what's ultimately leading to cell death. But it's interesting because these targeted cells, they can withstand biting at least for a limited amount of time. So it suggests that 
they can actually heal or survive the removal of a few bites, but that eventually, after many bites are extracted, perhaps the damage becomes too much for the cell to recover. And the parasite also does prey on living cells. It rejects any cells that are already dead. So that's what we were surprised by is that once a cell, for example, a T cell in our study had been killed, that the amoeba does not go on to ingest the rest of the meal. So they they tend to um, detach from and discard those dead cells. And that would suggest that perhaps this process is not purely about a means of obtaining nutrition because here the, the parasite is leaving behind cellular material that it could um, internalize and use as an energy source. So Bill, turning back to you, how can, so these amoeba, they bite the cells, but it's, it's not their dinner as such. So, so what is the function of that? What advantage do they gain from nibbling away? First, the advantage to the parasite of nibbling is that it kills the human cell and in, that allows it a portal to enter into the intestine because our intestine is protected by a single layer of epithelial cells. And so it's a very vulnerable part of our body. And so if the amoeba can nibble on that single layer of epithelium or skin-like covering of the intestine, then that allows it entrance into the human. In the developing world, what significance will this research, will these findings have for targeting treatments? Understanding uh, fundamentally how a microorganism causes disease is really the first step to, to being able to prevent or to treat it. The molecules that Katie has identified in this trogocytosis or nibbling-like phenomenon are each potential targets for drugs um, or for vaccines. That was William Petrie and before him, Katie Ralston. And if you just can't get enough zombie cells, check out this month's Neuropod where a neuroscientist reveals the immune cells munching live neurons. That's at nature.com forward slash neurosci forward slash neuropod. Coming up, the IPCC is set to release the latest report from its fifth assessment. It took hundreds of scientists countless hours to assemble and agree on. We take a look at how the mammoth reports are written and whether contributors are collapsing under the strain. That's after the research highlights read by Thea Cunningham. Robots made from DNA can carry out complex computing tasks inside a cockroach. Researchers in Israel folded strands of DNA to create a range of origami nanorobots. The robots open, close and coordinate with each other when they interact with certain proteins. The team injected the robots into a living cockroach. Different robot combinations could perform different kinds of logic tasks that each delivered a different outcome, like releasing antibodies in response to proteins. The authors say the technique could eventually be used to control drug delivery in humans. Find that paper in Nature Nanotechnology. Certain bacteria that infect plants turn them into zombies, useful only for helping spread the infection. Now researchers have worked out how. Phytoplasma bacteria, transmitted by insects, turn flowers into leaf-like structures that don't produce seeds. A UK-based team studied Arabidopsis plants. They found a phytoplasma protein disrupts how the plant grows its flowers by interacting with a certain class of proteins. In the process, phytoplasma makes the infected plants more attractive to leafhopper insects, which spread it from one plant to another. Find that paper in PLOS Biology. 
You're a climate scientist. You've devoted your life to your subject, and then, one day, you get a call. You've been asked to be one of the lead authors in a chapter of the next report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC. The UN has asked you, as one of the leading experts in your field, to assess and collate all the latest research from thousands of groups across the globe to contribute to the largest compendium of climate research in existence for the perusal of all the world's governments. What an honour. Time to pop open a bottle of the bubbly? Ask Dave Griggs. He's a climate scientist at the University of Monash in Australia, and he's been involved in the IPCC for well over a decade, acting as an expert reviewer in the latest report published this week. In a comment, he discusses what it's like to write a chapter of the IPCC report, and he gave me a bit of a reality check. I had a very long email from, from a scientist who said, I don't know how you dare ask me to do this again. The last time, it nearly ruined my life. You know, I spent months writing my chapter. And then, of course, once you write your chapters, it's sent out for review by all of the world's experts. So you get in thousands, sometimes literally thousands of comments back. You have to look at those comments, avenge your chapter, and then it goes out to review again by the experts again to see whether you've done a good job of taking those review comments into account and to all the world's governments. You get thousands of comments back again. And then you rewrite your chapter again. Then finally it goes to a meeting of the governments where they try and agree the summary of the report word by word. And so you get all of the world's governments, you know, attacking and testing the science. And then the report got, gets published and he said, you know, I got attacked by climate deniers. It nearly ruined his life and his wife threatened to leave him and you know, it nearly ruined his marriage. And then there was just the last line of the email saying, of course, I'll do it again. It's the most important thing I've ever done. So I think that kind of sums up for people why, you know, why scientists take part in the IPCC. They, they take part because they feel they're doing something important. Now, you mentioned that, that governments are very involved in this as well, which is something that's a little different to, to a lot of scientific collaborations. That's right. And an occasion when they helped was in, in a report, we said that a particular thing was significant. And the government said, well, what do you mean by significant? Do you mean that it's a 1% chance or a 5% chance or a 10% chance or a 50% chance? And the author sort of went, oh, well, we hadn't really thought about that. We just think it's significant. And so that the authors then had to go away and actually sit down together and say, well, you know, well what actually do we mean by this? So that was a, an occasion where the governments were extremely helpful. There are other occasions where perhaps they're not so helpful. Um, I mean, in the third assessment report, when we came to the final plenary, we had, we had the, just the second sentence of the report, which said something like, These, this report has been produced by many scientists from many countries. Virtually every government in the room put their hand up and, and wanted to make a comment on this sentence about what do we mean by many hundreds of scientists and what do we mean by many countries? And this went on for hours and hours and hours. And you, you have four days to approve this, this summary, which is about 10 to 20 pages. You know, and after half a day, we hadn't got past the first sentence and I was getting really desperate. Is this difficulty in, in making this report, is it something that's inherent in a collaboration this size? Or is there something about the IPCC and or the content matter, perhaps, that makes this such a, a difficult thing to create? Anything that is this complex um, is going to be very difficult. You know, climate science is is really hard science. You know, these climate models that, that make the predictions of future climate change, you know, can be a million lines of computer code put together by hundreds of scientists. You know, they run on the world's most complex supercomputers. It's by no means a, a straightforward undertaking to, to boil that down into something which is 
you know, easy and understandable and you know, accessible to people. So looking to the future, do you think that we're going to be continuing to produce IPCC reports or is there ever going to be a time when either the scientists have worked themselves so hard they can't keep lifting their pen or we don't maybe need them anymore? I think there will continue to be uh, the need for IPCC or something like it for a considerable amount of time in the future. As I say, although the basic science is pretty solid, the deeper understanding there is a, still a huge way to go. The fact of climate change and the impacts that that's going to have on the world are not going to go away. They're not going to magically disappear. So I think that for many, many decades to come, we will need the best possible information that we can provide on the science, the impacts, and how we mitigate climate change. And of course, it's not always the same time scientists every time. So once you've done one or two shifts, then you step aside and you let the next generation come through. I think there'll always be a new generation of dedicated climate scientists willing to put themselves through the ringer for the next report. Sort of like the, the climate scientist version of National Service. Yeah, kind of. You've got to put your time in. That was Dave Griggs. Read his comment at nature.com slash nature. Finally this week, it's the news chat and reporter Dan Cressy joins me in the studio. Hi, Dan. Hello. You've come today with a story about cute animals, which I'm, I'm pleased about, given that we keep talking about space in the news chat for some reason. Um, this story today in Nature's print section is about the Hainan gibbon. Yes, this is an animal that lives on the Chinese island of Hainan and is probably the world's rarest species of primate. And it's rare because humans have made it rare. Pretty much, yeah. They've been poached uh, for their meat and they have also suffered through logging of the forest, which have left them in a tiny area, pretty much just 20 kilometres square. And we think there are probably only 23 to 25 of these animals left in the whole world. Right. Well, so it's an easy area for researchers to monitor. Um, but it actually is quite hard to, to find out exactly how many of these gibbons remain, isn't it? Yeah, you'd think because they're in such a tiny parcel of forest and there aren't that many of them, they'd be quite easy to find. But actually, like all monkeys, they're not the easiest things in the world to keep track of. They're quite hard to spot. Um, some of the solitary individuals don't even make very much noise. Uh, now, last month, researchers got together conservationists on the island of Hainan to try and um, work through some strategies for conserving these gibbons. Yeah, the gibbon's been kind of underappreciated, maybe, in conservation circles. For ages, it was thought to be a subspecies of some other gibbons. And then because it was on Hainan in this sort of slightly hard to access part of the world. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of attention to it. But last month, that started to change. A bunch of leading gibbon researchers, some experts on species extinction, and some people who have worked with the Hainan gibbon for years got together to try and work out what can be done to save this species, what the major threats are, and how worried we really need to be. Well, quite, because I suppose one argument would say there's 25 or even fewer of these things left. You know, why should we even bother dedicating any resources to saving this this perilously endangered species? <laughs> why shouldn't we save species? Yeah, it's kind of a big question. So some of the recent work that's been done on this animal suggests that it's probably going to be all right for maybe the next decade. The population seems to be reasonably stable. But long term, there's obviously huge threats, firstly from just having so few animals, but also from having them confined to one particular area. So, for instance, if a typhoon comes through in the wrong way, that's it, your species is gone. And in China, there's also a feeling that there's a 
really a renewed interest in environmental issues and in conservation. If you speak to a lot of uh, Chinese researchers, they say there's a real feeling of change in the population and that this, the issues of environmentalism and conservation are much higher up the agenda now. And China also has a kind of mixed track record in this regard. They've done really well with some species, such as the giant panda, which has kind of become an icon of conservation in that country. But other animals, such as the Yangtze River dolphin, have not fared so well. So what are some of the strategies that are being discussed to try and save this very small population of gibbons then, of, of solitary and, and hiding gibbons? Well, at the moment, uh, a lot of the work is really going into just understanding what's actually going on. We have surprisingly poor data on uh, this animal's sort of long term. And they're really just trying to work out where this animal could live on Hainan. Is it possible to expand the current range from its tiny proportion? And to understand also the actual population, at the moment there are about three social groups of gibbons. These populations are reproducing. And there's a question over what happens to individuals when they reach maturity and leave those groups. They're kind of vanishing into the forest at the moment. So it might be they're out there and they're just not being detected, or it might be that they're not out there. And for those who haven't come across Hainan before, um, it's not as if there's only 20 kilometres of this place. You know, there's a large range that these gibbons could presumably expand into if they, you know, if they became able to. Well, one of the other questions that some of the Chinese researchers are trying to answer is where there is suitable habitat on Hainan. This island has suffered a lot of um, habitat degradation. A lot of the land has been lost. Um, so there, there, it's p- possible that there's spaces for these animals to expand into, but that really is uh, kind of up in the air at the moment. One of the issues for the gibbons is they were originally a lowland species. Due to their habitat loss, they've been driven kind of higher up the slopes into forests, which maybe isn't their ideal habitat. So identifying suitable or even ideal habitat for them is a a big issue. But Hainan has changed substantially since uh, the heyday of this animal, kind of back in the 50s when there were thousands of them. And at the moment, it's a case of really trying to safeguard them for the future rather than building them up to a massive population. Dan Cressy, thank you for joining me. Dan's story, with its inevitably cute gibbon image, is at nature.com slash news. That's all from us this week. Join us next time. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. 